Welcome to another of the podcasts from our Arts Research Africa series of discussions aimed at exploring and articulating the emergence of an artistic or creative work PhD in the African Research University. I'm Christo Doherty from the Witt School of Arts, and today, Denise Nicholson, the scholarly communications librarian at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, will be giving a presentation on open access, APCs, and predatory publishing practices. Denise is known as a person who's passionate about making information accessible to all through open access and open educational resources. She's been a campaigner for more balanced copyright laws in South Africa and other developing countries, and has been the organizer of Open Access Weeks at WITS. Open Access is an international movement that aims to make the products of research freely accessible to all. The movement is a response to the increasing commoditization of research knowledge by academic publishers who are seeking to maximize profits from their ownership of platforms such as journals by charging enormous amounts for researchers to access peer-reviewed articles. As a result, open access has had particularly strong resonance among universities and library systems in the global south, where the prohibitive costs of database license fees and scholarly journal subscriptions are a major obstacle to developing local research initiatives in developing countries. In South Africa, the outcomes of any research funded by the National Research Foundation must now be posted to open access repositories, and many local universities have followed suit. Here at Witts University, open access was adopted as an official policy last year. For researchers in the sciences and humanities, publishing open access means potentially more citations because their work can be read by a wider academic community. Publishing open access also means that research can be read by people outside the academic elite. Through open access, doctors, journalists, educators and activists can access research without the barrier of the subscriptions or pay for views that the commercial publishers impose. What this means for artistic research in South Africa has still to be worked out. Many of the outputs of artistic research, such as film scripts, movies, plays or music compositions are copyrighted or even commercially licensed and it's not clear how they can be posted to open access repositories such as Witz's Wired Space. For this kind of artistic work, the open access philosophy represents a radical challenge. In this presentation, Denise Nicholson will present an overview of the open access movement's effect in South Africa and will also give valuable pointers on predatory publishing. This podcast of her presentation is best followed together with the slides of her PowerPoint presentation. These can be accessed through our Arts Research Africa Facebook page. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. I'll be talking about open access, APCs, which are article processing charges, and predatory publishing practices today. I will be talking about open access at WITS, authors' rights, publishing considerations, how to avoid predatory publishers, and APCs and WITS Open Access Fund. So the open access at WITS, WITS has signed the Berlin Declaration on Open Access to Knowledge in the Sciences and Humanities on 9th of November 2012. This is an international document that many institutions around the world have signed. We also have an institutional repository called Wiredspace, where all your theses and dissertations will be deposited, and academic publications. We also have a Wiredspace LibGuide, which will tell you about our institutional repository. WITS also celebrates International Open Access Week annually, and it's co-organized by the Library Research Office and the Center of Learning, Training and Development. And if you want to see the previous events, I have given you the URL on the slide. WITS Open Access Policy 
took quite a long time to be approved, but it was finally approved by council in June of 2018. So what is open access? In a nutshell, open access is free, immediate, full text, permanent online access with limited or no copyright restrictions. And there are three different types of open access. There's the green open access, where you publish in a conventional accredited closed journal and you place a copy of your work on the institutional repository. So the open access is via a repository. The gold route is publishing in a peer-reviewed accredited open access journal, preferably without article processing costs, which are APCs. And that is open access via a journal. Then you have hybrid open access. This is where you publish in closed subscription journals, but single articles can be made open access after payment of an APC cost. And if you want any more information, there's a useful document called What is Open Access by Peter Suber, who's also a big activist internationally, and also the open access timeline where you can see how long open access has actually been going and where it is moving to. So I also talk about authors' rights, because you are all authors in your own right. You write essays, reports, you might write stories, poetry, songs, music. Generally, in terms of the copyright law of South Africa, the author or creator owns copyright in their work. But there are circumstances where someone else might own your work. And that is by institutional policy. WITS owns all the intellectual property and copyright in your thesis and dissertations, for instance. If you're doing work in postgraduate studies, WITS owns intellectual property. They will give you the opportunity to publish and earn royalties, but WITS does have the copyright in them. If you work for a newspaper or employer and you do work or research in the course and scope of your employment, the employer or the newspaper would own your copyright. By commission, if you wanted to commission an artwork, uh, the person paying the artist would be the commissioner and the copyright owner. And then if you want to publish, generally a publisher gives you an agreement. Most people don't read it, it's very small print, and they sign it and don't realize that they're signing all their rights over to a publisher. So I just want to tell you that authors do not have to sign all their rights to a publisher. They don't tell you that, they would obviously like all the rights, but you can ask for them to retain some rights so that you could do some things with your work. And I would like you to see the WITS Authors Addendum, which we encourage our academics to sign, but students can adapt it to suit themselves. Clause 4 of that agreement actually tells you what you can retain. It's not always easy to negotiate with a publisher. They don't always want to give you those rights, but just ask. There's no harm in asking. Someone at Fitz Medical School asked and they attached this form and she was allowed to put four chapters of her book on Sakai and the same four chapters on Wirespace. So at least people could benefit from the four chapters. And then I've just given you a link to tips on how to negotiate an addendum with a publisher. So it just gives some idea of how to approach the subject. But even if you sign over all your rights to a publisher, you cannot sign over your moral rights. And that is the right to be named the author of the work and also to protect your work from mutilation and distortion. Then claiming authorship. Authors must have academic knowledge of the content if they want to be named an author. Authors must have participated substantially in important aspects of the design, analysis and writing of the research. Others can be acknowledged. 
The author who submits a manuscript for publication accepts the responsibility of including all co-authors and ensures they all receive copies of each version and sign off the final version for publication. For monographs, copyright belongs to the main and co-authors unless assigned to a publisher or third party. When required, copyright permission may be granted by all authors or by the main author subject to a written agreement. Then ranking. Um, ranking determines the status of authors in relation to the research and content of the article or book. The main or most prestigious author is the person who carries out the major part of the research, writing of drafts, finalization of paper, etc. This author is generally ranked as the first or last author. However, ranking differs from one school or discipline uh, to another, and that is at WITS and elsewhere in the world. There doesn't seem to be a standard as to who should be first and who should be last. It does depend on different circumstances and rules. Agreement on number of authors and ranking is usually by consensus and should be in writing. So before the authors write, they should agree who's going to be first, who's going to be second, who's going to be last, and then by agreement they should sign it and all agree to that uh, ranking. Otherwise it could be problems later on. Now I'm going to give you some initial considerations when you start considering publication. Look at these ideas or items. Is there a possibility of a patent for your research? In some instances you might have a patent that could be registered and you could earn some royalties from it. First contact WITS Enterprise, which is our tech transfer office, or our legal office for advice, because you cannot apply for a patent if you have made it public. So if you talk about it at a conference, or if you publish about it and then want to get a patent, you can't do it, because the Act says you've got to apply first and then make it public. So just be aware of that, so don't go and spoil your chances if there is a patent available. Then select the appropriate publication. Do you want it in an international or a local journal? Do you want to look at the impact factors? Does it have good peer review and a good reputation? Do you want to go the green or the gold or the hybrid open access route? Who is the main and other co-authors? Don't let everybody who was just involved in typing up your work and those type of people who want to be authors, don't put them as authors if they haven't contributed to the major part of the work. Acknowledge them in the acknowledgements. Agree on ranking, as I said, of authors and fair royalty split. Always do that in writing before you publish, because invariably if there's money involved, there could be problems when it comes to royalties and the split of royalties. Are there funders involved? Sometimes funders have very special conditions, like the NRF. If you get a grant from the NRF, you must make a copy of your publication in an open access repository. Does it have copyright embargo? Sometimes publishers won't allow you to put it on anywhere until a 12-month period or on an open access repository, sometimes up to four years. So you would have to consider that when you're publishing. Consider the admin or technical people involved, the data collectors. What role did they play? Did they actually play a part as an author or were they just doing the technical side and can you just acknowledge them in your acknowledgements list? Not too much repetition of previous work in new articles. Update when necessary. Don't just put a whole lot of a previous work in a new article without updating and adding information because otherwise you're really just regurgitating information. Also reference your own work if you have made it public. So if you're using a conference paper, article or chapter in your thesis or dissertation or a publication, you must reference yourself like any other source. 
Material from theses and dissertations must be updated, reworked and referenced for publication purposes. You cannot just publish a thesis or dissertation as it is because it's not written in a book format. You would need to update it because by the time you've graduated and published, you may have quite a time period and you may need to get more relevant and updated references. Then always read the publisher's author guidelines and use prescribed reference style. If you know Harvard and use Harvard, but the publisher wants Chicago or APA or another style, you must write in the style they want, otherwise your publication will be rejected. Read the publisher's agreement carefully and attach the author's addendum where possible. Only submit to one publisher at a time. It's not ethical to send it to a lot of publishers at the same time. Wait for a response. If the work is rejected, take note of any suggestions they make, then rework it and send it to another publisher. Some publishers allow you to correct it and update and then resubmit. So read the instructions as well. Then key publishing indicators. When looking for a journal to publish in, check the DHET's accredited list of journals. It's updated every year and these are internationally indexed and accepted reputable journals. Check if registered with the Directory of Open Access Journals. They have strict criteria and you cannot get listed on that directory unless you've met their criteria. Is the publisher a member of the Open Access Scholarly Publishers Association? Committee on Publication Ethics or International Association of Scientific, Technical and Medical Publishers. Membership of these associations demonstrates commitment to internationally accepted standards and best practices. Then ask yourself, where is the journal indexed? Check the ISI Web of Knowledge, Scopus, ProQuest, IBSS or ask your faculty librarian to find out for you. Legitimate journals acknowledge their status, past affiliations, name changes, etc. They provide full contact details and a help facility for queries. They provide accepted standards of peer review, metrics, etc. And I've given you a URL for targeting the right journal for your research. Then open access requirements and research integrity. There is an NRF, the National Research Foundation, statement on open access to research publications. Please have a look at that document, because if you do get funding from the NRF, you must abide by the criteria and put a copy of your work in an open access environment. There's also an NRF statement on predatory journals and deceptive publishers, which is also useful. Then there's also a Singapore statement, which is an international document on research integrity, which is, sets out standards as well. Then the green route is really putting open access work in an institutional repository like Wiredspace. An ethical argument for green open access is if the public pays for research, then the public should have access to it. And that is why we have open access repositories. Open access maximizes, measures and rewards uptake, usage, applications and impact of research activity. Showcases research output on the global stage, your ETDs, your electronic thesis and dissertations, academic publications, output from the university, so it's showcased on the world on an open stage. It encourages cooperation, innovation, collaboration and further research. Cuts copyright fees, as no need for copyright clearance. It also provides free resources for teaching and research. We don't have to go and pay for copyright to make copies. They're available freely on the website. 
then external open access databases could be commercialized. For example, Mendeley and SSRN were bought out by Elsevier, one of the top um, publishers, international publishers. Institutional repositories will remain free and open and will be managed by the library for perpetuity. Some academics say, no, but I've got it on Mendeley or I've got it on ResearchGate. Why must I now go and put it on Whitespace? It's for the very reason that they can be commercialized and they could be closed and they won't be accessible again, whereas the library will continue to maintain them and keep them for perpetuity. Can you explain why no copyright fees? Because they're open access, so you won't need to apply for copyright. You would be able to use them and make multiple copies without permission. How is it possible that an open access repository gets bought by a commercial publisher? Surely everyone who had deposited material in there did it with the understanding that it was open access. So how does it then get commercialized? Elsevier is buying out many resources, including open access resources, because they need the metadata. They bought out Mendeley, for example, and they commercialized a section of it. So you can do certain things on it free, and then if you want more advanced applications, then you have to pay. And the same with SSRN, which is a social sciences research network. It's open and free, and you can do what you like with it. But there's also an aspect where they've closed it and it's commercialized. And I think they will do the same with ResearchGate in the future. Um, maybe not now, but I think in the future that's another target for them because it's got everything they want there, everything's open, and um, the metadata is there, and that's basically what they're buying them out for. Okay, then to be able to put material on an institutional repository, you have to abide by the copyright policies of the publishers. I've given you a number of links where you can find information about the publication and the journal that you want to publish. There are a number of publishers that allow the published version to be placed on an institutional repository. So they will allow you to put the published final version with all the pagination and the branding, they will allow you to put that on Wirespace. And there are almost a thousand publishers that allow that. Some publishers who don't quite allow you to put the final PDF version, but they will allow you to put the manuscript copy. That is your final peer-reviewed, edited work that you submit to the publisher. And that they will allow you to put up on condition that you either put it up straight away or you put it up under an embargo where you might have to wait a period of 12 months to 48 months before you can put it up. There are conditions that you have to abide by. If you are looking on this site, which is called Sherpa Romeo, search by your journal name, not the publisher name at first, because they have specific general policies for their publication, but then for the particular journal, they may have other uh, conditions. So always look for the journal name first. So if you want to know whether you can put a copy up or not, go to Sherpa Romeo, look up the journal name, and then you will see all the details about which copy you can put up and what the embargoes and conditions are. If you want to find out South African journals on Sherpa Romeo, I've given you the link for that. And then there are a number of publishers who have white policies, which means you cannot put any version up, even the preprint, your first print or working paper, even that they won't allow you to put up on a repository. You can write to these publishers if you want to and ask them, can you put up a copy of your work and see what they say? But generally their policy says no. But if there are some circumstances where you can, they may consider you.
If you're publishing gold open access, which means you're publishing in a fully open access journal, I've given you a website where you can find a lot of information about publishing your research, and this includes open access publishing. You will also find the DHET accredited list, the updated list for 2019. You'll find Cielo South Africa, which is DHET accredited. These are the South African journals that are on the open access platform of the Academy of Sciences. Then there's a director of open access books if you want to publish in a book. And then there's a director of open access scholarly resources, which are useful for publishing and your studies. I've also given you a site where you can look up plagiarism, citation and referencing styles. So you can choose the correct referencing style and know that you're doing it in the right way for publishers. You can also register an ORCID once you start publishing, which is a unique number or an ID for researchers. So it links all your publications under this number. Then metrics, I've given you the link to find out about metrics about journals. And then I have mentioned this before, but targeting the right journal. You must go to a journal where they're likely to publish your work. Don't give them a topic that they don't even publish on. You know, it will be rejected. Then the accepted research metrics, I've given you two lists. One is the bibliometric resources. Those are for the standard conventional subscription journals and then alt metrics, which lead to open access material. What kind of metrics will these resources give you? They will give you the H factor and various other metrics that are accepted internationally. Denise, are we as contributors to the WITS open access platform, Wiredspace, are we able to get metrics about the way that our material is being accessed or used? WITS has a software on Wiredspace which gives you statistics. You can ask them for them monthly or quarterly. They will pick up who is using your work, basically, where it's coming from, which country it's coming from, how many hits it has had. You can get quite a nice uh, picture of how it is being used. If you want to, you can always ask your librarian to find out for you, or you can go straight to our IT manager, Charles Roberts, in the library, who will give you your statistics. And you can ask him if there's a possibility of getting them regularly. I'm not sure if they have alerts or how they do it, but I'm sure there's some way that you can get them on a regular basis. So now we'll talk about predatory publishers. Predatory publishers are there to make money. There's no interest in research integrity or quality. Some have questionable or substandard practices, but are not necessarily predatory. This means that a new journal that hasn't really got to the international standards might have come about, but they haven't quite met these standards, but they're not predatory. They will improve as they go along. Questionable could be that these standards are not 100%, but they're not predatory in the sense that they're making money from your work. Predatory means that they're actually making money out of your work as well. Predatory publishers refer to false metrics and inclusion of content in abstracting and indexing services. On their web page, they will say that these are the metrics that we use, but they very often are false. Then the false metrics that publishers use are one of them is global impact factors. There is no global impact factor. There also are a list of metrics that they use which indicates that they are predatory. They use Google Scholar. It's not an index, yet they say it's one of their metrics. They use GISI, Copernicus, CITER factor, global impact factor, GIF, journal impact factor, JIF, universal impact factor, UIF, 
then SJIF and iSource. And you might find a number of these listed on their page advertising that they are indexed by these metrics. Well, if you see any of those, I saw one yesterday where someone asked me about it. I said, just stay away from it. It was an indicator that it is a predatory journal. There are bogus journals. Unfortunately, even some of the bigger internationally accepted publishers have published bogus articles. Elsevier, Nature, Science, Springer, IEEE have all published bogus articles. Some have even been computer generated, not even generated by an author or human being. There's a whole list of predatory journal publishers and I urge you to look at them before you do publish. There is a librarian, Jeffrey Beale, at a university in America where he kept a list of predatory publishers or black list of publishers for some years. And it was quite helpful to go and look at that list and if you saw what was on there, you didn't touch it. Unfortunately, I think he had some litigation issues where a publisher he might have added didn't want to be on that list and threatened to sue him or his institution, and he immediately was told to close the list. So we only have his archived list up until December 2016, but we still look at it and it's still helpful. He wasn't always correct. He did put some publishers that perhaps shouldn't have been on the list and they sometimes they removed it or they threatened litigation but it is a guide for us. Unfortunately, the only other list that is out there that's a blacklist is very expensive, Cabell's International, and it's something that Witz has considered and said it's too expensive. But the problem with a blacklist is there's always someone that is being accredited or de-accredited at the time that you're looking for it, so it may not be on the list. So it's never 100%. So whatever blacklist or whitelist exists, there's never a 100% correct list. So some people have taken Beals's list and added extra, and they seem to be adding it. They, they won't give their names, which also makes it a bit suspect. But we do look at these lists and say, okay, if they're listed, let's do a bit more research about them and not publishing them, perhaps, because they must be predatory or are predatory. Then there are two books, and when you said, someone in the room said that he had an invitation, I hope it's not from one of these publishers because they are predatory book publishers. Omniscriptum, formerly VDM Verlag, or Lambert Academic Publishers, LAP. What they do is they harvest institutional repositories, mostly in developing countries, although they're based in Germany. They have got affiliates in Mauritius. Then they write to you and say, congratulations, I see you've just got your degree, your master's or PhD, we'd like to publish your work. And all they do is take that work and put a cover on it. They then give you a paperback version and they then make money from your work. You never hear from them again. But they do absolutely no work. They do no peer review, no editing, no reformatting, nothing. Um, and so please do not publish with these. They are not good to have on your CV. Some academics have not got promotion because they've had quite a number of these on their CVs when they've applied for promotion. So it's something you must, be, particularly if you haven't published before, be very wary of predatory publishers. So if you get an invitation, just think twice. Why would someone be writing to me to publish my work when the international huge big publishers never write to anyone, except if you're an expert in a field and they're wanting you to do a particular review or study. But generally they get so many manuscripts sent to them and they reject so many, they haven't got time to write and ask you to publish your work. So when you get a letter, just think this is not 
kosher. This is strange. Either look at this list, or you can always email me or phone me, and I'll do a bit of research and advise you. But please don't publish in any of these works. It's not good for your CV. Denise, why shouldn't one publish with a predatory publisher? What are the consequences? Can you just explain? I mean, I had, for instance, a student who wrote a really good master's thesis. She was approached by VDM Verlach, and I warned her about it. And she argued that nobody else was interested in publishing her work. And at least this way, it was being published. Uh, She wouldn't get royalties if she was published by Cambridge University Press or any of those major academic publishers. They don't pay royalties. So what, why not do it? Well, first of all, it's on our repository already. So it's open to the world already. So if anybody's going to read it, they can read it on our, they'll pick it up through a Google Scholar search or any search because it's out on the web. So anybody who reads it and feels that they'd like to cite it can cite it directly there. Citing one of these books is not good either because it's the international community knows that they're predatory. And so as soon as you see someone is published with this, you immediately say it's not a good quality, it's not uh, peer-reviewed, it probably hasn't even been edited, so there could be errors in it. So it immediately has an inferior quality. So do you really want to publish in something that's seen to be inferior? Rather wait and maybe rework your work and send it to a publisher in articles rather than a book so that you could get a few articles or even a chapter of a book out of some of your chapters rather than put your whole book out there when it's already on the web and you may not get citations because they know it's predatory, they may not even cite it. But they possibly would if it was on Witz's institutional repository because then they know it comes from a university. I think also it's just bad for promotions. It has proved to be for academics who have put a list of CVs forward and quite a lot are from priority publishing. They say, why didn't you look at better ones? You should have published. You know you should publish in reputable ones. Why are you choosing this? The sad thing about it is this publish and perish syndrome. And a lot of supervisors even are giving their students a chance to publish by publishing in predatory journals or books and they're not doing their students any good either. So I would just say keep away from them altogether. Go for a good publisher even if it's not a well-known one but it's still a reputable one. Rather publish there because that will grow and get better whereas these ones are known to be they don't improve their standards. All they're doing is publishing something that's out on the web already. They also sometimes write to you and say you've published an article in a journal can I republish it and that is unethical too because all they do is they infringing copyright of the publisher who's published it so just stay away from them just be very careful then they also fake conferences please when you get an invitation do some research check the sponsors even IEEE has sponsored some of these fake conferences. Some use the same name and acronyms of genuine conferences, or they change just one letter, or change it slightly so you think it's the real thing and it's not. It's called a hijacked title or conference name. Sometimes they offer several conferences in one year, which is quite impossible if you know, if you know the amount of work that goes into one conference to offer several just sounds funny. Also, they're the same contact for several contacts. How could one contact person manage all these other conferences? Sometimes there's no venue 
or no program details or not a website detail. They, on the website, they just give a URL. They don't give a contact detail and it's very hard to find out information about the conference. We have had some academics who have actually paid for airfares and registration fees and have gone across overseas to find they are fake, they don't exist, or they are very mediocre where there's 30 people in the room, the speaker comes and talks about any topic, walks out and another person comes in, really bad quality papers. So please, if you get an invitation to it, always do some research, ask supervisors or people in your department, do you know about this? Go on to Google and have a look and find out about it. I once was invited to a conference in India and I didn't see it for some time. I think I was away and finally I got this I read it and it was a wonderful trip to the Taj Mahal and everything paid for and everything. Oh, this sounds great. I wrote and I said is this still going and they didn't respond luckily and then only afterwards did I find out that it was a predatory conference. They were trying to attract people to come because of the tour, which I also fancied, but it really didn't exist. So be very careful when you get an invitation. And then another thing that they do is honorary credits. They will add you as an author to a book that you've never written or a journal article you've never written, or an editor. Suddenly you find you an editor on the editorial board of a journal you have nothing to do with. It's not always easy to know that you're on that, but if you are on it, ask for them to remove your name immediately. I got an email on or a notice through LinkedIn saying I'm a, a co-author of this book on librarianship written in India. I didn't have a clue who these people were and I had certainly not written it. And I wrote to them and I said, please take my name off immediately. And they wrote back saying, no, we want your name because it's an international book. I said, I've never seen this book. I have had no contribution to it. I don't know any of the authors. Please take my name off. I don't know to this day whether they did because it's very difficult to find it. I don't know where to find it. You know, you do searches, it doesn't always come up. It may not be online, it might be a paper book and there your name sitting on it. So these are things that these people do. But I'll give you a cautionary list on some of the things to look out for so that you don't publish with predatory people. Review the journal scope. Is it too broad? Does it publish on almost any topic? If you get a journal like that, it's uh, bell ringing. It cannot cover every topic because the editors have to be specialized and cannot cover all these. So that is one thing to think about. It has no ISSN number, which is an international um, journal number, or a DOI, a Digital Object Identifier number. Most journals have those. Uh, the DOI is a fairly new number, but they should have an ISSN. There's no contact details or website. Titles have a country name in them. For example, Canadian Journal of, and then when you look in, it's got nothing to do with Canada. It's written in Asia or Nigeria. India and Nigeria, unfortunately, are the two countries that are particularly bad with predatory journals. In fact, India had a white list. They listed all their white journals, or good journals, and then they did a study on it, and 111 of those journals on the white list were predatory. <laughs> So you have to be very careful. Titles mimic other journal titles. You don't always notice. I had one where the original one was two words and then the hijacked one just had a comma and USA on it. You think it's the real thing, but it's not. And you don't always notice that difference. 
It has excessive advertising on the website. That's another thing. The look of the website's a bit messy. Lots of advertising, lots of words, colours and that. That's sort of another example of predatory journal or publisher. It has no links to international accredited publishing bodies, which it should have. If they're part of international bodies and societies that they belong to, they should be listed. They offer very quick publishing time, even overnight. I've had one academic who said he had a situation like this where they offered him at 5 to 12, they said they would publish his work at midnight. At 5 past 12, they said his paper had been accepted within 10 minutes. That's absolutely impossible. We all know that peer review takes at least four to six weeks, if not longer. Um, so they cannot possibly do something instantly or even in a very short period of time without doing it badly. Poor or no peer review. And then authors not required to rework the material. They publish as is, with errors, with different formats or incorrect formats. They just add a cover. Then the author fee schedules are often vague or hidden. Publisher invites the author to review or write for journals unrelated to their field. So you'll get an invitation to review something totally out of your field, which also rings bells because this is unusual. Publisher guidelines are copied from others. Sometimes they cut and paste other guidelines as if it's their own guidelines. Journal claims to have an impact factor, but no way of confirming it. Or it's a very new journal and it claims it's got an impact factor. And an impact factor works out over a period of time. So you can't have an impact or a high impact factor if you've only just started or just been going for a year. A number of journals have exactly the same editorial boards. Also, when did the journal start? Is it regular or is it just one of those volume one, issue one? And it doesn't go beyond that. Try never to, I know it journal has to start somewhere but don't be the person who has to publish in volume one issue one because it may be the only issue that is published. Has it been removed from the DHET's accredited list? Unfortunately some have been and one that was on the accredited list for many years and was used by several people in the humanities and social sciences was a Mediterranean Journal of Social Science it was full of plagiarism and they withdrew it from the DHET and the international indices. And people say, well, what happens when I published it, when it was accredited, now it's on my CV and it's an, a predatory publisher. Just state on your CV, if you have published in a journal like that, that at this stage, it was on the accredited list. Um, so that when you published it, it shows that it was accredited at that stage. Also do not hide if you have published in a predatory journal, do not hide it from your CV because people, when you apply for a job, they go onto the internet and check. And if you've left it out, they'll ask you, why have you left it out? So what I suggest is to put your list of publications and then other publications and list it under there. So it does show that you've published there, but it's not part of your good publications. Then there is a check that you can use, think, check, submit. If you click on that, it gives you some idea how to check to see if it's not a predatory publisher. This phenomenon of predatory publishing, is it growing? Is it becoming more prevalent? It is becoming pre prevalent because of the young people having to publish a lot and they don't have the chance to publish in very good ones and so they see it as a route to publishing. But ultimately it will catch up with them when they do one promotion or job. So it won't do them good in the long run if they publish in them. 
Um, India is rife. It, it really is a bad situation where they encourage academics to publish in these just to get a list of publications. But they don't realise that it doesn't only affect people who are writing in that. It affects people who are using journals. You don't always know when you find a journal, that when you're citing from it, that it's a predatory journal. You haven't always got time to go and say, can I cite from this journal or is it a predatory publisher? So sometimes if people keep writing in these journals, the quality and the level or standard of writing is not always good then people are going to start citing them without knowing it and it will bring down the whole level of academic writing. So we have to try and stop it where we can. I, I will talk about the APC charges and the fund we have, but in the process I've already stopped a number of people publishing in predatory journals just because they're applying to me for help and then I say don't publish with those people. One lady I had to tell her to withdraw her paper from the journal. Some journals like that charge you to withdraw your paper, so you've also got to be careful. I have given you a, a list or a URL on how to avoid predatory publishers, publishing practices, and that's quite useful. Then I'll talk about article processing charges, or APCs. This is for gold open access, which is fully open access journals. What is an APC? It's a publication fee that some publishers charge authors to publish their works on open access. It is not a per page charge for closed subscription journals. Some closed subscription journals charge you a per page fee if you've done more than the words they've said you should, or they just charge per page as an automatic entrance to publish the work. Not all open access journals charge APCs. There are a number that don't, but many do. And they can be very expensive. Anything from 40,000 rand upwards, some less, depends on the publisher, but it, it, it is very expensive for the author. Some charge institutions high subscription fees for the journal, and then they charge the academics to pay an APC for an open article. And that we call double dipping, is where they're getting money twice for the same journal. And it's not morally accepted. Then to avoid APCs, before you publish in a journal that does charge APCs because they are so expensive, rather select an open access journal without APCs. And there is a URL which I've given you. You can check the DHET accredited list and if you put no in the fourth block down on that website, it will give you a list of all the open access journals that don't have APCs. So those are the first port of call that you should check. Then you could consider publishing in a closed subscription journal, which is not open at all. But depending on the publisher's policies, you could put a copy on Wirespace. It might be the published version, it might be the postprint version. But that would open your journal. If it's published in a closed journal, it would open your publication to the world by putting it on Wirespace. You can check the journal title on Sherpa Romeo, as I said earlier, for your publisher's copyright policy. And then you can look at the DHT accredited list. And when you look at that, you can also check that they list the open access journals on that list. So you can decide which one you want to approach. Denise, the publishers who don't charge a fee, what is their business model? Are they being subsidized from some other source? Because presumably they're not having to make money out of publishing your paper. A lot of them are university presses, institutions, research institutions, but there are some publishers themselves. 
they probably have a different model. They're probably getting money from other aspects of their publishing. Much like Vitz Press, they publish a lot of books that are closed, you know, that you, uh, they're not open, but they've got an open access project now where they are paying themselves through money they make to create books uh, in an open access environment, hoping to get sales from those also, uh, because it's always nice to see something free, but you don't always want to read it online. You might want to buy the book. And in fact, some people find that if they put their book out, when they, depending how um, well-known the author is, if they put their work out on open access soon after they publish, they find that the readership increases and the sales of their hard copies increase. HSRC, for example, put all the research reports on open access and the sales of the hard copy at the time, within a few years, increased by 300% because people didn't want to photocopy the whole item or research report from the web. They would buy their hard copy. I know a science fiction author in Canada who the day he publishes, he puts his work on open access and he said it definitely increases the sales and interest and readership of his work. Okay, so how to apply for open access funding. We have an information sheet with all the criteria and an application form at this website. You can also find it by just doing a search APC Vitz Denise and you'll find this site. The information sheet tells you the criteria, who can apply. It must be related to someone at Vitz. A student, a postgrad student can apply for funding as long as you're publishing with a Vitz academic. I've had a few queries where students have published with someone from UJ or Stellenbosch and they couldn't apply because it wasn't of its academic writing with them. And then the criteria relating to the funding is we pay 50% of the APC charge up to a maximum of 10,000. So if you've got paid 40,000, you would half of that would be 20,000, but it's still more than 10,000, so you would only get 10,000 paid for you. But if your work was say 7,000, you would get half of that um, back from the fund. The fund pays to the faculty that you work in, or the academic who's writing with you. It's paid into a faculty account and the faculty then refunds to the authors. So this is just the process that the fund follows. First check if funds are available. Obviously in the beginning of the year we have funds, but as we get towards the end of the year we may be running out, so don't go and assume you're going to get funding and find we've run out. We hope we don't, but I know other institutions have sometimes run out by August. We only started this in late August last year, and each year we'll get a certain amount of money. So at the moment obviously we've got funding, uh, but it will deplete as the year goes on. You have to pay the APC fund first, the invoice. You can't get money from us and then go and pay the APC. That's just how we've worked it. So you must submit the completed application form, the invoice from the publisher, the proof of payment that you have paid to the publisher, and a letter from the publisher saying that you are going to be published, or if it's already been published, a copy of the article, or even just the first page of the article will suffice. And that is the policy. If you want any information, you can always email me or phone me or go onto that website and see all the information available. And then just finally, become visible on the web. 
If you're not on Google, you don't exist. If people are looking for your topic and you're not, you haven't written anything, nothing's available, they're going to cite someone else. So if you want to get exposure on the world's global stage, put your work up in some way. Get a research identifier, which is an ORCID number, and you can go onto the ORCID site and apply it. It's free. Or ask the research office. They will help you to do it. Place a CC, a Creative Commons licensed copy of your publication on the personal website where the publisher allows you to. Sometimes the publisher allows the, the author to put a Creative Commons licensed version on a personal website, but they won't allow it to go onto a repository for 12 to 48 months. If it is a CC licensed version on your site, we will be able to take that version and put it on a repository because you can't change that license. So if you can, always put it up uh, on a personal website with a CC license, and then the repository can just take a copy of that licensed version. Also, put things on ResearchGate, LinkedIn, or anywhere where people could read your items. But be just careful of Academia Edu. It is an open access site, but it is owned by some private proprietary owners and they do have a section where if you want to know your metrics and that you have to pay they call it a premium version it's most frustrating because I've got it on some of my publications on and I keep getting someone's read your work look at your metrics and then you look and you can't get into it and it's too expensive to pay so it's not worth putting your stuff on there if you can't see the metrics but it may help just to be put up there so that people might cite you also they might write to you and ask for a copy of your work um, so at least it's out there but I wouldn't really recommend it ResearchGate is better at this stage because it gives you metrics and it still is open but you can't just put a version up unless you know what the copyright owner allows you to do because there have been some students not in South Africa but generally in the internationally where Elsevier has asked people to take down the versions on ResearchGate because they've infringed copyright because they've put a version up thinking they can but it doesn't the copyright doesn't belong to the um, to the actual author it belongs to the publisher and then there's more information about web presence for academics there's a link there that you can have a look at as well and then in conclusion know your rights as an author you do have rights so negotiate and get a, the best deal you can with a publisher don't be shy to ask them can I have some rights back? If they say no, fine, but rather ask than not. Agree on ranking of authors in writing. Always put it in writing. Do not exclude a valid author. If you leave out an author, you could be plagiarizing and infringing copyright. And this sometimes happens with supervisors who think they can take an article or a chapter from a student's thesis or dissertation and publish it. If they don't have permission to do that from the author, they are infringing copyright and plagiarizing. I have had some students who phone and say, my supervisor's publishing my work without my name on it. And I tell them that they must take it up with the legal office, unless it's to protect the author, you know, depending on the topic, but then it must be by agreement. But if you've done the major part of your work, you must at least be a co-author. Mostly when you start writing, you write one or two articles with your supervisor. And that helps because they're already known in their field. But also, if you've done the major part, you should be listed as a co-author. 
And then ensure all authors are involved in the review, the editing and the publishing process. Don't let one person do all the work and then you say, oh, well, I want to be a co-author. You must be involved. You must know what you're writing about. And if anybody asks you questions, you should be able to answer them based on the knowledge that you have about the topic you're writing about. Also agree on how royalties will be split for monographs particularly. Rather be fair 50-50 than 70-30 perhaps, but it does depend on the contribution. I know someone who wrote a book with a good friend and they no longer speak to each other because they didn't agree. They fought over who should be the first and last author and then they didn't agree on royalties and ultimately there was a big fight because uh, the one got more split in a percentage on the other and uh, the one who got the lower amount did most of the work so it, it does cause problems so rather do it up front and in writing if possible also publish open access to reach a wider audience and to attract more citations select a reputable publisher preferably on the DHET list but the, the director of open access journals and books is also a good source avoid predatory publishers also avoid paying APCs where possible, but apply to the WITS APC fund when you can, when you are publishing in one where they require an APC. Follow the journal's author guidelines. Always follow these guidelines because if they want a certain type uh, style of referencing, they want that style and it's no use sending it in another style. The font size, the spacing, the formatting, all is usually given in the guidelines and you must follow them otherwise it will be rejected. When including third-party images or photographs or any other copyrighted works, get permission beforehand. If you're taking a lot of you know, works from a publisher, you would need to get permission before you include it in your publication. If it's just one image, say, from one publisher and from another one, then you could reference it. But if you're taking a lot of the, from the same publisher, it's not fair and you would need to get permission. Then always do a turn it in report before submitting your manuscript so that you can just check that it's not plagiarized and that it's all okay. And then if your work is rejected, take any advice that's given because sometimes you get very good recommendations and send it to another publisher. Don't get upset if it's rejected. That is how publishing works. Even top scientists get their works rejected. Publishers just cannot cope with the number of manuscripts and sometimes you might submit it to a mediocre publisher thinking well I've got a good chance and they reject it and you send it to someone even better and they accept it it just might be what they want the one who rejects it might just feel it's not the flavor of the month or they've got too many on that topic so don't get put off by rejection it's just part of publishing and just do improve it and then try someone else and then best of luck for your publications and thank you very much thanks very much <laughs> Are there any questions? Hi, Denise, and thanks for the presentation. I just wanted to ask, in the beginning, you spoke about intellectual property um, belonging to the university. So I just wanted to ask about misconceptions around like um, famous people like your Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs basically dropping out of school, like your Harvard and all of that. So a lot of times that like people say they dropped out because they didn't want the schools to have intellectual property rights to their inventions. Is that true or, or not? In terms of the copyright law, if you are a student or an author of your work, you essentially should be the copyright owner. But by institutional policy, 
you have to abide by the institution's rules and regulations. And not all universities do that. The majority in South Africa do it, where they hold the intellectual property, and they will give you back your copyright if you want to do a book, or they'll allow you to assign your rights to do a publication in a journal. In America, and I think UCT is one of the few in South Africa, the institution owns the copyright, but they get a non-exclusive license from the student to the university saying the university can do certain things with it. So that is probably a better way so that the student does hold copyright. But I have rethought this. I used to be against that, that the university held it. And then I realized it somewhat protects the author. Because sometimes, uh, if you know it's Witz's intellectual property, you'll be more careful where you do publish it. You won't go and publish it in a predatory because you know it's not your um, copyright or your intellectual property. Witz will also help you if there's a patent, for example. They'll help you to apply for it and get royalties. Whereas if you didn't have that, you wouldn't know where to go or wouldn't get the assistance. And you you could get uh, a fair amount of royalties um, if it's done through the proper channels. And I think it's just somewhat does protect the student. Also, it gives the right to institutions to create an institutional repository without having to ask every student, can I put it, your work on the repository? Some say, well, there's no harm in asking them to sign a document or so. But I think it just makes it a lot easier for South African institutions who are trying to build up research out there because developing countries have got their research everywhere and African research is very minimal when you think of what's out there on the web and I think it just gives the institutions a better chance to put it out there without the hassle of going through every thesis and asking for permission. If someone wants to use a work from your work, like I often get requests, can someone use an image from someone's thesis, then I recommend that they ask the head of school or the dean of the faculty and write to the author, just as a courtesy, to say, I would like to use this image from your work. Hi, Dennis. My name is Tabo. Thank you for the workshop. Very informative. I've got one question. Since you you have noticed that there are so many bogus and so many problems with publishers, because I've got a background as a musician, like Samro. Is there an organization for writers which you know of which is reputable or is it just doesn't exist? There is the Academic and Non-Fiction Association of South Africa, the ANFASA. They do, it. You, it is subscription based, you have to pay a fee, but they assist uh, authors in how to write and where to write. There's also the Publishers Association of South Africa, PASA, where they have a directory of all the publishers uh, and publishing members. So if it's listed in uh, PASA, generally it's a good, acceptable publisher. Internationally, there's different in author alliances and associations and that. But in South Africa, probably PASA would be the first stop if you want to know what's a good publisher in South Africa. If you want to look at journals, you can look at the accredited list on my website. And books, there's no accredited list at this stage. There used to be, but it's, there is no one now. It's best to find out more from your head of department or people in your department. Where do they write? Um, what books you know, in the field? Are, what publishers are good to approach? Don't just take any publisher because or any book. Rather, do a bit of research before you choose where you're going to send it. 
there is a problem sometimes with South African authors generally where some of these South African publishers won't publish for them. There's nothing to stop you going to an overseas publisher and asking for publication. Also, just be careful of self-publishing. Some people self-publish and it becomes very expensive. There was a lady who came to see me. She had done a whole series of books, but it cost her, just for one book, it cost her 18,000 rand. And the poor lady made a real big error with her referencing, and she had to redo the whole thing. That was a learning curve for her because she hadn't done all the others, but she realized it's not as easy as you think. Also, you have to market it yourself. There are some companies that do self-publishing, but again, they some of them are not so reputable and they give authors a lot of problems. They delay things, they don't give them the copies they're supposed to, they don't do the proper marketing. So rather rather go through a proper publish if you can, but if you want to self-publish, get advice You know, from my office, I can find out for you, or do some research first before you publish with someone you don't know, because you could lose a lot of money as well. My last question is, like VETS as an institution, because this information is very relevant, but some of my colleagues or people who are even doing masters and might not have access to it. What guarantee is the school making sure that every graduate after they write that they have this information? There is no compulsory course or a guarantee that everybody will get this information. It's mostly I've got a libguide and all the information is on the libguide. In fact, I've got a number of libguides and I've linked a lot of it. But my scholarly communication libguide and my scholarly research one, you'll find most of this information. I do talks like this for departments. I also am doing a number of the same talk at CLTD, the Centre of Learning and Teaching and Development, over a period of March onwards and I also do talks in the postgrad workshops on copyright plagiarism workshops um, writing better um, and schools can invite me they can say I would like to speak on these topics and we can organize something but unfortunately there's only I'm only one person in the department and I, I do lots of talks at this time of the year and throughout the t- year but there's not too many people covering the same topic some of our librarians cover some of what I'm talking about, um, but comprehensively, you know, it's the only talk I give. Nobody else gives it, and particularly the copyright issues and plagiarism, because that I also talk about. No, thank you very much for the information. Because even like Google Scholar, I thought it's like reputable. Google Scholar is okay. Might pick up um, some, uh, you know, not uh, good um, journals and that. But Google Scholar is generally good. And if you see, sometimes you get to Google Scholar and you can only get the abstract. You can't get into it. If it says Vits on the right hand side, you can click on there and you can go into our library resources and you'll get the full text. But what I would suggest is that you look at our resources first because we've got wonderful apart from print and multimedia and newspapers and government publications etc we have huge collections of full text journals and ebooks and they're all internationally accepted and you know very good journals so go there first before you go anywhere else denise thank you very much You've been listening to a presentation by Denise Nicholson, the scholarly communications librarian at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. This is part of an ongoing series of dialogues, discussions and workshops organized by Arts Research Africa in the Witt School of Arts to explore 
and articulate the emergence of the artistic or creative work PhD in the African Research University. I'm Christo Doherty, and this podcast has been produced by Elna Schutz. Podcast was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation through the Arts Research Africa Project in the Witz School of Arts. The song used in this podcast is Decompress by Lee Rosvera, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution License 3.0.